0: Softly and tenderly. That sweet, simple gospel hymn it has been a part of my, my entire life. The churches I attended as a young person growing up, saying that all, all the time. But I was well into my 30s before I realized that that phrase, softly and tenderly, was speaking to the feminine side of God's nature. But to the, to the side of God's nature that welcomes all of us just like little children were welcomed and received into the church today, a beautiful and precious reminder of God's love given to the world softly and tenderly. I cannot think of a finer hymn to sing on this day than this one. I want to let you know as we jo- begin the sermon here that when I was in high school, this might be surprising to some of you, I was painfully shy. Part, part of that was due to the fact, I know, a preacher shy doesn't sound like that's, that goes together. But in school, I was very much so. We moved a lot when I was a young person. In fact, in high school, I, I moved my junior year three different times. From September to December, that first semester, I transferred in and out of three different schools. And so a natural shyness was made even worse by the fact that I literally three different schools, three different starts was the new guy, the new guy, the new guy. And I came up with a plan, though. I thought if I could make the varsity basketball team, then people would know me and I'd, I'd be well known in the school and people would come to me instead. Isn't that the way that works, right? Probably not. But I still believe that's what would happen I, st- I cannot forget ever the moment that Coach Pullen called me into his office, held out a uniform, and I said, do you need me to do your laundry, Coach? He said, no, you made the team, smart boy. I took that in my arms, I sprinted all the way home. It was, by the way, the colors of that school were scarlet and gray, (laughs) except the front said Rams, which seems kind of just disconnected. Put it on as soon as I got home and boy, I was sure, now I'm going to make friends. Now people will come to me and it didn't quite, as you can imagine, didn't quite happen that way. For one reason, I was the 12th guy on a 12-man team, so people didn't know who I was. But I had this false notion and maybe, Maybe some of us still think this way. I know I have to wrestle with it. I had this false notion that if I could achieve something, if I could make the team, then I'd be somebody and then people would want to be my friend. That I'd finally become who I'm supposed to be and I'd be popular and funny and whatever else, all that stuff would be a part of that. If I could just make the team. I learned early on, I was 16 years old when that happened. I learned early on what the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes said 3,000 years ago. Vanity of vanities all is vanity. Do you remember that text? It's right there from the beginning of Ecclesiastes. What he's saying essentially is you achieve this, you earn this, you make the team, you get the corner office, you have the big beautiful house, you have the car you've always wanted, everything's great in your life, and then your life is over, and what does all that amount to? He would say vanity of vanities. In in Hebrew, the word for vanity is chabel. It literally means mist. That ancient philosopher was simply saying to anyone who would listen. We live our lives and then the next thing you know, it's like steam on the mirror. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. Despite knowing this, despite this truth being a part of, of, of what we understand as we grow up, we still find ourselves, well, maybe you don't, but I still wrestle here in my 50s with trying to see if I could achieve this and achieve that and make this and get this here and earn this award and do something else, then finally... Finally, I will become somebody. It's a lesson that I seem to continually have to learn and relearn, and I dare say that I don't think my story is unique. Don't raise your hand. Don't say anything. But I suspect you know what I'm talking about. I have a very good friend who's in ministry. Beautiful church, thousands of members, very well known. But a few years ago, he got a letter from about five, signed by five people in the congregation, saying, we think your time is done. We think it's time for you to re- resign. Move on to whatever's next. We'll take care of the church from there. Now, again, like I said, my, my friend's church, amazing place, beautiful, strong, wonderful missions around the country, around the world, all of that. But that letter just gnawed at his soul. It just ate at him. The, the, the church leadership, when they heard about it, they stood up and they, they cared for him. But still, he still had this sense of, of failure, this sense of not being the best pastor he possibly could be. In fact, he told me with tears in his eyes, the day I got that letter, I couldn't sleep. At three o'clock in the morning, I heard a train whistle way off in the distance and I prayed, God, put me on that train, I'd just like to ride off into the dark and forget about everything. And he said, worse than that, Glenn, was I was afraid that you and Julie wouldn't be our friends anymore, that you would see me as a failure, that you wouldn't want to hang around with me. I said, are you kidding? What kind of friend would, that would we be if we didn't stand by you in your time of need? But still, do you, do you understand what he's talking about? Do, do you have that same sense? If, you're, if you don't quite become the person that you think you're supposed to be, or, or maybe that person that you try to put out on Facebook or you try to put out on social media where everything's great and perfect and wonderful and, and my children are nice too and isn't this wonderful? And if you don't quite achieve that, what will people think? Paul was dealing with a similar issue with the church in Philippi 2,000 years ago. He was, he was writing to a church that had lost their understanding of contentment, of what it means to be happy in your situation secure in your knowledge of who you are, of who God has gifted you to be. Paul knows this. Paul, Paul knows that it's, it's, it's hard for, for human beings to stay focused. He writes, though, and says, and by the way, he's writing from prison. I am content in any and every circumstance, whether full or hungry, whether having plenty or being poor. Do you hear how simple that is? He's not writing from a beautiful island overlooking the Aegean Sea with a nice glass of wine on the side. He's not writing from an ivory tower at an academic institution and contemplating life. He's in prison. He's in chains. We don't know for sure if it's in Rome or in Ephesus, but we are certain he's in prison. And we also know that his life is in danger. And yet he's able to write to the church in Philippi and say to them, listen, let's let's be clear. Let's, let's understand what's happening here. In, in plenty and in want, I've found the ability to be, to con, to be content. He's, he's, he's discovered what, what some today call the very breath of God. That when you breathe in, breathe in with me deeply. When you breathe in that breath there, that's a gift from God's own hands to you and to me and to the world to experience life in the here. And then now, he's also writing to a church that's in conflict. They're having a fight. We don't know the details of the fight. All we know is there's serious conflict going on in this congregation. Earlier in the letter, he writes and says to to, two leaders in the church, Euodia and Sintish, the two of you I know are in disagreement, but you've got to find a place where you can agree. Shake hands and move on, would you please? That's the Glenn Miles version, but that's essentially what Paul is saying to these two leaders. I know there's, there's, there's conflict. I know there's difficulty for you. Could you could please find a way that you could move on and move forward? And note this, Paul's solution to whatever it is is not a little pat on the back, but a serious, a serious word invited them to pay attention to what matters the most in their lives. Now, I know that this is easier said than done because we really do think that if we could become, sometimes it's become a leader at the church or a leader in your school or a leader in your business. If we could really gain this and gain that, then people will pay attention to us and we'll, we'll matter more. We'll be somebody. We'll be someone. It's easier said than done to just kind of let go of all of that and to be content with who we are. Not that any of those things are bad in and of themselves, but to simply be content with who you are, period, while going about your life and achieving whatever it is you may or may not achieve. Tony Campolo is a great Baptist preacher and Tony tells a story about a time a couple came to see him. They're really in distress. Their marriage was falling apart. They didn't have any time with each other. Their children were, were angry and upset all the time. It just seemed like their busy lives were constantly in struggle against each other. Their calendars were a mess. They never had any time to be together as a couple, as a family. And what can we do? And he said, well, tell me about your life. Tell me about what your, what your lives are like right now. Well, we work all the time. Both of us are working full-time. In fact, the husband said, I not only work Monday through Friday, 40 hours a week. On Saturday, I work in a part-time job, and I work in a part-time job on Sunday. We're just going, going, going. We can't quite keep ahead of the bills. we got so many bills. We just have to work all the time to take care of all that, especially paying for our two brand-new cars. <laughs> and Tony said, you have two brand-new cars. Yes but you have lots of bills. Yes, why do you need two brand new cars to get to all our jobs? They said all this with no sense of irony in what they were saying. And yet it's easy for us to get, to get caught up in that same kind of thing where we're spinning the wheel, where we're, we're racing the rats. I heard, I heard somebody say a couple of weeks ago, if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. Well, let, that, let that soak in. But see, as I noted, Paul's life is most likely in danger. There's something about death that clarifies what matters most in life. For Paul, it's the possibility that he may die at any moment that has helped him see really, truly what matters the most. He's found that contentment in recognizing. He's given his life in service to the world and to God. And in that moment, in that place, he has probably as alive as he's ever been. The Buddhists call this, and I might mispronounce this, Marana Sati, that that sense of of mindfulness, of of paying attention to your own frailty, your own death, and in so doing, being set free to live. Do you read the New York Times? Maybe you saw a piece on Friday, an op-ed piece, about Senator, Senator John McCain, as you're probably aware he's dying the piece began by saying, Senator McCain is dying. And as a result of this, he's not only planning his funeral, he's experiencing it. He's living it. And then the next two words in the piece were these, he's lucky. He has a brain tumor. He's dying of this terrible disease. His life will be over soon. And he's lucky? Yes. He's lucky. Why? Because he now knows he no longer is seeking platitudes or honors. He doesn't need people to come by and tell him how wonderful he is. What does he want? He wants the blessing of each day, the cool breeze off the mountains in the Arizona desert, the reminder of the ones who love him and have always stood by him. At the end of the article, Senator Joe Biden was quoted, Why did you go to see McCain? After all, the two of you have been political rivals. You've fought about all kinds of things, higher taxes, lower taxes, this, that, whatever it might be. You've been political rivals your whole life. Why did you go see him? And Senator Biden said, I wanted to tell my friend I love him. Do, do you see that? Do you see how death clarifies? Oh, yes, uh, let's continue the struggle and the, and the political discussions that we're having. Let's, let's do everything we can to continue to make the United States of America the strong and amazing, wonderful country it has been for, for 200 years or more now. But let's never lose sight of the simple fact that every day is a gift and what each of us want at the end of the day is someone to love, someone to serve and care for. I do hope that you are are doing something sweet and wonderful for your mom, but maybe the finest thing you could do on this day is call her up or send her a note or talk to her if she's nearby and simply say, Mom, I love you. That will be the finest gift she receives. I, I guarantee it. But see, this fight that's going on in Philippi, it's a, it's a fight about power and control. It's, it's about the, who's in charge, who gets to be in control of this, who gets to do this specific thing here. We don't know the exact things that are going on, we don't have a record of their board meeting minutes, but we know they're struggling for power and control in the church. And in fact, in the church since forever, that has been the primary source of every fight we've had. Oh, it might be about theology, or it might be about which hymns do we sing, or how should we sit in the church set up, and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's about power and control. In the 1850s, the United States of America, churches were having fights all across the land. What was the issue? 1850s, 1860s. What was it? Slavery. Slavery. At the end of the day, it was about economics and power and control. Don't you tell us how we'll treat these human beings. Today, the church in the United States of America continues to fight over the issue of full inclusion of LGBTQ folks. Oh, not in this church, 20 years ago, we, we realized that the church is to be open and welcoming and affirming of everyone, of all of God's children, including those in the LGBTQ community. We've been there for a long time. But I was watching the TV last week. I watched preachers on TV. I saw this guy in Texas, stayed with him for a while, pretty good style, not bad content until he got to the gay issue. And he said, these people, and he spit out that word, these, he just kind of spit it, these people are trying to take control of marriage. What's the issue? Power. And control. Paul wants them to see that that is a dead-end street. Now, if I was Paul, I would have hired a consultant. I would have done a congregational survey and had a congregational meeting. What he does, what he does, I like con- church consultants. I have good friends who do that work. But what Paul did was he gave them a serious big piece of theology. Earlier in his letter, he quoted an ancient church hymn. He said to them, Jesus Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and held on to. Instead, he emptied himself, took on a form of the servant. In Greek, the word servant is doulos. It literally means slave. He became a slave, a slave even unto death where he went to the cross. Do you hear what Paul is saying? This is a big piece of theology. Only preachers bring theology into a fight and a conflict, but it works so beautifully here. You want to understand what matters most in your church? Let us look at Jesus, who gave himself as a slave to the world, who gave himself on the cross in the name of love for his friends. Any questions? This is the simple and beautiful truth of contentment it's giving ourselves away in love to another. Uh, not too long ago, I was in the kitchen doing dishes. Now, it's not that big a deal. It's my job. Julie's a cook. She's a great cook. She's tremendous. She really is. She's, I like to brag about her because she's really very good. But I, I've noticed the better the meal, the bigger the mess. Have you, is, this, is that true in your house, Jim? It's true. Yeah, I, I'm going to get Jim in trouble. It's not, I shouldn't do that. The, bigger, the better the meal, the bigger the mess. One day I was in there, lots of pots and pans and I'm scrubbing, I'm cleaning things we can't put in the, in the dishwasher, which I don't think we should make anything else like that ever again. Anyway, I'm scrubbing these pots, I'm doing everything I can to clean. I, I wanna get them done, I'm in a hurry because there's a game I wanna watch, an NBA playoff game, I wanna get on and watch the game. Julie comes over, puts her arm around my waist, gives me a kiss on the cheek and I said, what, what was that for? And she said, you're just so cute when you're doing the dishes. <laughs> now that's probably way more than you wanted to know on a Sunday morning. And I'm not saying, look at me at all. I'm just saying, here I was just doing my job. That's the job. We divide. She has, she has jobs in the house. I have jobs. We divide them up equally. She does some, I do. No big deal. But there's just something about that, isn't there? About being available to each other. About following through. About doing what you're called to do. Fred Craddock says, the central event in the drama of salvation is a simple act of service. He's writing about this text. That we've read today. The central act, did you hear that, of salvation is a simple act of service. It's not about who gets into heaven and who goes to some place mythologically that does not exist. No. God's going to welcome us all universally in the arms of love in the life that is to come. The simple act of salvation is about today. The Greek word for that is sozo. It means I save or to be saved. To be saved today is to be given the gift of a full life right now in this moment, to be alive and fully so. The central event in the act of salvation is humble service. Have you been on a Mexico trip lately? Have you volunteered to tutor at a school? Maybe in a place where kids need a little extra help? Have you met with Joan Talmadge and seen that big pile, that big box of plastic grocery bags she has where she and her team I don't know how they do it. They weave them together somehow and they turn our grocery bags into mats for the homeless to sleep on. Have you done something like that? According to the Apostle Paul, you're participating with Jesus in saving the world, in bringing life where there is death, light where there is darkness, hope where there is sadness. This is the grace of humility. This is the grace seen In the discipline of service, Paul is saying as simply as he can, this is the place where we discover the deep contentment that God wants all of us to find, amen.